0: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. Today, I want to bring you a special episode of the podcast featuring a guest who is currently living in the COVID-19 induced lockdown in Melbourne. The restrictions include only being able to leave your home for an hour of exercise a day and essential tasks like food shopping or seeking medical aid. Movement is limited to within five kilometres of your residence and there is an overnight curfew. My guest is also an expert on mental health needs, which have rapidly risen because of the pressures associated with the pandemic. I'm talking to Georgie Harmon, who is the CEO of Beyond Blue, Australia's most recognised mental health body. In the interests of full disclosure, I have the honour of chairing Beyond Blue and working closely with Georgie. Georgie, particularly for non-Australian listeners, can you describe Beyond Blue? So we're 20 this year and we, are as you
1: said, we're Australia's most well-known and visited mental health organisation about. um, Nearly 90% of Australians know about Beyond Blue, which brings with it, you know, a great pleasure but also a great responsibility. We focus on depression, anxiety and suicide prevention and about 13 million Aussies reach out to us every single year. And our vision is really simple. It's that everybody in Australia achieves their best possible mental health. And to do that, we need to work with the community to help them to achieve that. We started off, you know, really focusing on awareness raising back in 20 years ago and really focusing on stigma reduction as well. And now we've kind of evolved into behaviour change. So how do we actually influence all the parts of where people live their lives to help them to be as mentally healthy as possible? And we're often the, the first place that people go. So I talk about us being the big blue door into services. And we've also evolved into lots of service provision as well. So we, we provide everything from early intervention support right through to supporting people after they've attempted suicide. So it's a big job, but a very rewarding job. Best job I've ever had. What has the pandemic meant for the work of Beyond Blue? Look the pandemic is coming off the back of a devastating season of bushfires here in Australia. So we thought that that was our big event in 2020 and we you know we've been running ever since the beginning of the year to support the community to recover from that. So it's been a pretty extraordinary time and I think there's a couple of things that have really struck me. There's not one person who hasn't been touched in some way in terms of their well-being as a result of the pandemic. And the emotional impact as well as the kind of financial and job stress and everything else. Some people are doing it much tougher than others, but we've also seen record numbers of people come to us for the first time. And they've come onto our sort of sites and our platforms and they've kind of gone, wow, so here I am. You know, I never thought I'd be here, but here I am. And one of the really positive things I think we've seen come out of that is a greater sense of empathy and understanding for what people experience who do live with poor mental health. I'm really hoping that's one of the really good things that comes out of this and that that sense of empathy and understanding sticks. So we've seen record demand like 66% increase in April compared to the same time last year. That's falling away a little bit as the rest of the country opens up a bit, but it's still experiencing record demand. We've had to adapt really quickly to ensure business and service continuity And I guess we've really come down to why we're here. What is our singular purpose now? And our singular purpose has to be to support the whole community to to recover. And we know that uh, we need to be in this for for the long haul. The social and economic aftershocks will be profound and that will have a profound long term effect on people's mental health and well-being. We're seeing increasing isolation, exhaustion, family stress, financial and job stress and a greater acuity in distress as well and increasing suicidality which is a really really big concern. We set up in in a, a matter of a week a coronavirus mental well-being support service thanks to federal funding and that's really taking a 24/7 digital first approach. It's got a dedicated phone line, it's got web chat with professional counselors. We formed a number of new partnerships which is fantastic. But it's it's really about taking that pop, whole population prevention approach. Let's get people reaching out for support early, talking things through with us, accessing really practical advice about how to protect their mental health so we can stop things
0: getting worse for them. So it's been an incredibly busy time. Beyond Blue is a national body, but it's Melbourne based. And so the whole team's working virtually. How are they coping? And what are the new challenges that are being posed to you as CEO? Look, we've all been working from home
1: since early March and the team again have just been magnificent. But I do worry about them. And I really miss them. You know, I miss I miss not having that that contact. And I, I guess I like to think I'm pretty hands-on and I'm having to learn different skills, different cues in the Zoom doom that we're all living through at the moment. But I think one of the things that I've really that's really struck me, and I think it's something that I try to do, whether we're living through a pandemic or not, is to really be open and honest in my communication. I think that's really worked well in these circumstances. I've shared with my team those times that I've actually really not been doing well, really not coping. And I think it's important for them to see that. I've also learned that, In a crisis as a leader, it's okay to not have all the answers. But what your team really appreciates is that you gather as much information as you possibly can, you make decisions and you make decisions as quickly as possible, you know, and then apologise if they're wrong. But I think it's also really important to ask really direct questions of them, like what do they need from you and the leadership team to actually help them through what they're going through both at work and in their home lives as well. And the other thing we've we've had to think really hard about is resetting expectations around productivity and, and really renegotiating different types and levels of productivity and just be really accepting of that. And the, the other thing that I, I actually made a big mistake on early on in the pandemic was I didn't use inclusive enough language. People's experiences are really contextual. Some of my staff live alone and I forgot about that, you know, even though I live alone. <laughs> Many of our staff have got family overseas and not knowing when they're going to see those family members again. Others are juggling, you know, a cranky partner who's also working from home or lost their job, homeschooling, all kinds of things. So it's, it's highly contextual and, and, and I think it's been an incredible experience for me leading a team through a time like this and I'm just so proud of them. You know, they really have stepped up. We've never been busier and they've never been more productive, committed and passionate about what we do.
0: Let me just pick up on that living alone. I know that you do live alone with your much-loved dog, Lola, but what is that like in the middle of restrictions, the kinds of tight restrictions that Melbourne has? How are you personally coping with that? Well, Lola says hi, by the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And look, thank God for Lola, like she's 17, she's a bit blind and deaf, but it's been really lovely to just actually spend a lot of time with her, which I, I don't usually get to do. I am so grateful to have a job. I'm so grateful to have a job with enormous purpose right now, but it has been a bit tough and some days I am great, others not so much. You know, my family's all overseas. We are keeping in very regular contact. I get the micro details of their lives every day through WhatsApp, which is actually i found really comforting. But like all things, we as human beings, we are hardwired to crave stability and certainty. We don't like when control is taken away from us. I am one of those people. I like to to feel in control. So the things that that I have been trying to practice myself and the advice we've been given the community is, we need to really try and focus on what we can control create those moments of certainty in our lives every day whether that's what time you wake up you know what time you eat when you go for your your hourly exercise regime limits news and social media i have a rule where you know i have enough exposure to this during business hours so i just actually see what i need to see but i actually don't tune into the news in the evenings And go back to basics, pay attention to those things that we know are really good for our mental health, enough sleep, diet, getting as much exercise as we can. And I think be kind to to yourself, you know, we do not need to emerge from this pandemic having learnt 13 languages and with a six pack. And self-care is so important, you know, it's not a selfish act, it's a smart act, it's an act of self-replenishment. And, you know, I'm taking the odd day of leave, so I'm away from screen time and encouraging my team to do the same and I'm connecting with people regularly. And, Julia, the rest of the world has kept up with me. I am an avid jigsaw puzzler, so I have been puzzling like
0: mad. Well, I'm glad you're an avid jigsaw puzzler. I have tried a jigsaw and I've now come to the conclusion that they will get a vaccine for the virus before I finish (laughs) this 1,000-piece jigsaw. I'm hopeless. Women are obviously affected by the virus in particular ways and by the stresses and strains of lockdown. Do you think that there are gendered consequences for mental health as a result? Look, mental health
1: is already gendered for both genders. Women report experiencing mental health conditions at much higher rates than men. So take anxiety. One in three women in Australia will experience anxiety in their lifetime compared to one in five men. For depression, that's one in six women and one in eight men. Increased chance of, during pregnancy and the year after birth of experiencing poor mental health for women. And women also experience PTSD and eating disorders at higher rates than men as well. So those are, you know, frightening figures. So it is gendered, but we also think that that's because those, those higher rates are also because women are more likely to report and they're more likely to seek support than men. But then there's other overlays as well. We know that women are known for putting others first. We know that they generally tend to carry the load at home. So I think the restrictions are creating a real pressure cooker environment where the pandemic has turned these existing simmering pressures up to a boil for many people. And one of the worst examples we've seen of that is obviously domestic and family violence. And I think the other dimension to this is the importance of good work and feeling like you're making a contribution to your mental health. And the economic and employment implications of the pandemic are hitting industries the hardest, those industries which are characterised by low-paid and casualised workforces, which we know have a gendered element to, to them. And I think that the whole aspect of working from home, and Julia, you've written about this recently, it's tempting to really think that greater flexibility will be a great equaliser for women. But, you know, as you said in that article, women are more likely to still carry more responsibility at home while they work, while men tend to focus on their work whilst they're at home. And I think we need to be thinking through these constructs really carefully as we plan for what our future working environments look like. And, you know, the, the avoidance of the development of two tiers of workforce where, you know, if you do prefer to work at home because that suits your life and your other responsibilities, do you miss out on those moments where you get pulled into a meeting for a quick decision? Do you miss out on those moments where, you know, you get rewarded because you're on show? So I think these are all the kinds of things that are clashing around in my mind and very much from that mental health and well-being Perspective, but I think it really, you know, we've got to really be thinking about the economic and work implications of this too.
0: One of the gender dynamics of the pandemic has actually been lots of reflections and commentary about the effectiveness of women leaders. And I was drawn to some new research from the UK that shows women presidents and prime ministers did react more quickly and decisively in the face of potential fatalities. And as a result, their nations have gone better in dealing with the pandemic. What are your perceptions of women's leadership at this time? And do you think you've led differently because of your gender? I think this
1: whole experience has really shown into sharp focus, different styles of leadership and that command control, partisan leaders who need to feel that they have all of the answers all of the time. Has really come up into, into stark contrast with a more consultative, empathetic style where people listen to and heed the advice of science and, and the experts in taking that decisive preventative action. So that's what I've observed and what I've learned myself is that at times like this, people are really scared and they want decisiveness, but that decisiveness lands differently for people based on things like the tone and the style of communication. And I think people are responding much better to leaders who they think understand what they're going through. They want clear and, and empathetic and reassuring leaders. And I think, you know, again, I think there is a gendered lens to that. And I, I think they also, when mistakes are made, and they will inevitably get made, there is no playbook for this. They want honesty about that. They want candour about that. In terms of my leadership, I think I've tweaked my leadership in the ways that I talked about earlier, but but maybe my gender has been a bonus. That's certainly the way that I've been reflecting on it. And I think, you know, based on all of my limited time as a leader, what I hear time and time again and what I see from the reactions from the people that I lead and the stakeholders that I work with and the partners that we form partnerships with is that they want vulnerability and empathy are much underrated or undervalued characteristics of leadership, but I think they're the ones that are the most potent, regardless of whether or not we're living in a pandemic.
0: Let's leave 2020 aside for a moment. I'm sure many people would be relieved to hear that sentence. I want to move back in time. Can you tell me about your early life, where you grew up, your family? Sure. I
1: was born in England. I was born in a snowy night at home. I grew up in Singapore, so we left England when I was very young, very little. And I think, you know, that sense of living overseas and gave me a sense of adventure and a different perspective on the world and a bit of a travel bug. I'm from really pretty basic stock. There's nothing extraordinary about my family. They're pretty salt-of-the-earth people, really hard-working parents who met, who were both scientists. The, the science gene did not rub off on any of either me or my siblings. I'm I'm a middle child, um, so I've got an older sister and a younger brother. I was a real tomboy. My elder sister was a very good girl, much better daughter than I ever was, I think, and still is. And I guess I always ran my own race. I kind of slipped through the middle a bit. But I just had the most incredible childhood, a childhood that was absolutely about love and stability and routine and comfort and it was all going along swimmingly. My dad was very successful in business and then lost absolutely everything. So we moved back to England with absolutely no money. And my parents worked tirelessly to reestablish their lives and our lives. But again, when my sister and I talk quite a lot about this, despite those incredibly changing economic circumstances, we never felt any different. The love, the stability, nothing changed and i think that's been so incredibly important to who i am today that's been so formative my dad would probably fall off his chair and call me an idiot to hear me say this but one of the biggest feminists i know is my dad and i'm reading a book at the moment julia and you know in in that first chapter there was this line in the you go girl <laughs> section where you said it, it was if, and I think you were talking about yourself and, and your co-author, it was if our parents had whispered that into our ears every day. And that line absolutely resonated with me. And in fact, it kind of got a bit teary reading it because that was exactly how I was raised. My parents never took gender into what they saw for us and I felt I could do anything.
0: Thank you for that reference to my recently released book co-authored with Ngozi Conjury wheeler With all of that, even with parents who don't role model gender stereotypes, can you recall a moment, the first moment when you thought to yourself, boys get treated differently to girls in this world?
1: Yeah, I wasn't at home because, as I said, I was a real tomboy. My sister and I used to get given dolls at the same time every Christmas, for example, in the early years. And, you know, mine would look like a rat bag within five minutes and my sisters would be immaculate for the next five years. And that very quickly converted itself into, you know, my sister would get given a sewing machine and I'd get given a toolbox or a skateboard. So again, it, it, it never really kind of was part of my home environment. That's certainly how I, I didn't feel that way. So I guess it was more at school that I started to realise that because I wanted to be in the rough and tumble of, you know, what the boys were doing. And I think I felt a sense of how we were supposed to behave as girls, and the kind of classes that we were supposed to enjoy more, you know, home economics and sewing as opposed to metalwork and woodwork. So I think I think it was really at school that I started to feel that, you know, I was really into sports. And sometimes I was sort of picked up on that, told I shouldn't be behaving that way. But
0: as I said, I kind of just have always run my own race, really. You went to university and you studied for an arts degree. Now, many young people really discover themselves at uni. They find a sense of purpose in life. They know what they want to do. Did you? Would it be
1: inappropriate, Julia, for me to say that I discovered women and neighbours
0: at university? Women and neighbours. Neighbours, you mean the Aussie TV show? Absolutely. So <laughs> I, I, I came out
1: as, as a gay woman at, at uni and have and never looked back. And every day in the student common room we used to watch, a pack of us used to watch Neighbours, the Aussie soap. And I thought I quite like the look of that place. <laughs> So, <laughs> so yeah, women and neighbors, yeah, you know, I was the first in my family to go to university and I think you know, that was both a glorious and a quite a discombobulating experience because I you know again went to a very normal government school and then ended up at Cambridge with this you know all of these people who had often very different lives and experiences to me. So I found that quite disconcerting but also quite empowering and that was those are the years that I really figured out who I was. And I said, you know, this is me. And I think I've carried that sense of self-centeredness, not necessarily confidence, but a sense of who I was from those years. And it had been really quite unquestioning about that. And I never went back in the closet. I've always been out at work. So, you know, I think that sense of, you know, this is me, this is who I am, and this is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life was very much part of those early uni days.
0: And what was your family's reaction? Your parents presumably were enormously proud of you. I mean, they were involved with science but hadn't been to university themselves, so for their daughter to go must have been amazing, particularly to somewhere like Cambridge. How did they respond to you discovering yourself as a gay woman and what did they think about neighbours? I guess we've got to do both. (laughs) Well, that neighbours no, is my dirty little secret. <laughs> it's out now. <laughs> Here's the really interesting thing.
1: So as much as I felt loved and respected by my parents, I didn't come out to them. I didn't come out to them until, until my mid-20s, actually. My brother and sister knew. And I didn't come out to them because I was terrified of losing them, absolutely terrified of losing them, which is nonsensical when I look back at it now. So my coming out story was quite strange. I went home. I was living in London. My parents live in Newbury in Berkshire, or they were living there. I went home on the train from London, big family dinner, told my siblings I was going to let them know that night. They went, right, we'll have dinner and then we'll bugger off to the pub, which of course they did. And we were watching football, soccer, as it's known in Australia. I remember just walking in and saying, I've got something to tell you, sitting down, just absolute rambling story about who I was and I'm sorry I hadn't told them and all I remember is my dad reaching across for the remote turning the tv off looking at my mother looking at me and I thought oh here we go this is the moment and he stood up and he came towards me and he hugged me and he said darling I love you and I burst into tears he had a little cry mum had a little cry and then they went back down and started watching footy again so that was it That's a lovely story. It was a really beautiful thing. And I don't understand why I was so terrified. But I think it came down to that sense of I just didn't want them to not love me anymore. And I think that that's such a common experience for people from the LGBTI community. You just fear that discrimination. You fear that cutting the hardest from those that you love the most.
0: So university, in every sense, transformative experience for you. And You left uni and went to work as a paralegal. Now, that's a good job. And you've said in the past that it enabled you to save up and to go on some great holidays. And that's a good thing. And for many people, actually, that would be enough, a job that supports a lifestyle that they enjoy. But it wasn't for you. Why not?
1: Yeah, that was my sliding doors moment when it came to my career. I was offered a fantastic opportunity at this major city law firm in London. They, They said to me, you know, we think you make a great lawyer. We'll pay for you to do your articles. You'll have a job. You'll be a partner before you know it. And I thought to myself, oh, I just don't know. So I said to the senior partner, can I think about it, which I think he was quite bemused by. And I went home and I thought, gee, I better come up with a good reason if it's a no. At that same time, I had started as a volunteer buddy for the Terrence Higgins Trust. It was the bad old days of HIV and AIDS and people were dying in quite significant numbers. And so I was a volunteer buddy. And I thought the amount of joy, experience, feeling like I'm making a difference to someone's life, I don't think I'm going to get from the law. So I went back and said no. And of course, I had to leave. And um, and then I went into the HIV AIDS sector. So my life would have been very different, I think. Um, But the, the thread throughout my career has been that sense of, I need to feel like I'm in a job where I'm having a direct positive impact on someone else's life. And that's certainly how I feel about the job that I have now.
0: And you went to work for a community organisation that ended up being a very successful fundraiser for HIV, AIDS related causes and activities. And it had attention from Princess Diana, who very bravely used her celebrity to help educate the community about AIDS. And yet for all of that, for the fundraising, for the royal celebrity attention, this was a time of real stigma and fear. What did you learn from that period in your life? And are there any lessons that resonate today? I mean, we're obviously dealing with a completely different virus, but is there anything from that era that stays with you as we face this pandemic?
1: Mm. Those are the days of my early activism. So my early activism was actually less about feminism and women's rights as it was about fighting HIV and AIDS. And it was more about survival because a lot of my friends were gay men and, you know, it was a real issue of, you know, life and death back then. So I, it was very personal. You know, it was seen as a very othering disease and it, it HIV stimulated so much fear and stigma and discrimination. It was quite difficult to make it into a mainstream issue. Interestingly, when I was working in the sector in London in those days, for the first time, the number of new infections shifted groups from being gay men or men who had sex with men to African women who were, you know, recently arrived in in the UK. So I remember running this fundraising campaign that featured an African woman and her baby and that, you know, got quite a visceral reaction from our usual donor base about that. So it was a really interesting time. I think what the HIV AIDS response showed us unequivocally was the battle needed to involve the community just as much as it needed to involve the experts and the importance of behaviour change, whether that was about safe sex or regular testing, combined with the public health response, using the best science, disease control techniques, new treatments. But the community engagement was absolutely, I think, fundamental to shifting behaviours and attitudes and reducing stigma. And I see a lot of similar patterns or needs in the current pandemic that, you know, we have seen the current virus engender racism. We have seen a kind of sense of stigma of like, oh, you've had it, you don't have it, blah, blah. We've seen the coming together of science and public health experts. We absolutely need to get that community engagement and behavioural change piece, because that is the thing that is our biggest weapon against this virus.
0: Happily for Australia, you migrated here, obviously persuaded by neighbours that this would be a great place to live. And you moved over time from working on HIV, AIDS to working in healthcare more generally. And in October 2005, you were in Darwin when victims of a coordinated series of terrorist bombings in Bali were brought there for urgent treatment. Can you describe to us how it felt to be so close to that tragedy? I mean, that killed twenty people and injured over a hundred. You must recall that as just a huge event in your life.
1: Yeah, I should stress though that I played a really minor role. <laughs> you know, I wasn't I wasn't one of those absolute heroes who were just, you know, rescuing people and, and saving people's lives. You know, I was responsible for coordinating the media management response. So, you know, it was just one continuous press conference after the other. But I guess it was profoundly shaking, I think, to me. That sense of trauma was still very close to the surface, especially being in Darwin, which had been the only evacuation site for the, for the first Bali bombings, which I think killed over 80 Australians or people. What really struck me about that time was how teams of, with very differing backgrounds and experience and disciplines came together as one. So whether they were doctors or nurses or first responders or the military or bureaucrats, actually, this sense of you just got to roll up your sleeves. Everybody's got to know which, which part they have to play. And then you just get on with it because people's lives depend on it and people's recovery depend on it. So th- that sense of, of the magnificence of teamwork, I think, was probably the, one of the things that, that I really took away from that time.
0: And after that, you went to Canberra, and you were involved working with the health department on a broad range of issues. But happily, you fell in love with mental health. Why?
1: Well, I really fell into it. So my portfolio included a whole range of sort of wicked social policy issues, drug and alcohol, chronic diseases, cancer, but then also mental health and suicide prevention. And I thought, oh, you know, this will be interesting. I haven't really done this before in my public service career. And and I thought, yeah, this will be fascinating. And second week in the job, I met with a group of um, people with lived experience of, of mental illness and some carers. And I opened the the meeting saying, well, you know, it's so lovely to meet you and I'm really looking forward to working with you. And I remember they just stopped the meeting and they just absolutely wiped the floor with me. And they gave me a lesson around there's a saying in mental health, nothing about us without us. And it's absolutely about that consumer led voice of expertise that comes from experience of living with or caring for someone who lives with a mental health issue. That really struck me that I needed to kind of get down off of my lofty pedestal and actually really understand what this was like for people. And what I found was a profound sense of, gosh, we need to do better. Things are getting better, and I, th- I think we need to recognise that things are improving, but we are still not doing as well as we need to for people and families. But with that, also a, a, a profound sense of purpose and opportunity that actually if we do get this right or we do do better, this is going to profoundly affect the lives of millions of people. So it just kind of has stuck with me. (laughs) So I'm not an expert. I'm not, I'd have no professional qualifications. I am just absolutely fixated by the interesting people that I meet who face the most extraordinary adversity and are just the strongest, most resilient, most hopeful people that I think I've met. Combined with the challenge, you know, there is no day in my job that is ever the same and there is so much to do. So that
0: is highly motivating. And you've been in the job as CEO of Beyond Blue since 2014 and obviously the organisation has rapidly expanded during that period. We do so much more than we used to. One of the things that Beyond Blue has certainly had a profile in Is talking about how discrimination and stigma can impact mental health. We've done that from the perspective of racism, but we've also done that from the perspective of discrimination against the LGBTI community. As a leader in that community, are you pleased that there's been progress, marriage equality and the like? Do you think that discrimination and stigma are falling away? What more do we need to do?
1: Oh, look, I think we've seen huge steps forward in terms of attitudes and, and stigma and, and, and also really important policy and legislative and structural changes as well. But it is not over. There are still legislative and other debates that really threaten equality of human rights, whether that's religious freedom or whether that's how, you know, pedagogy in schools or, or even conversion therapy, the practice of conversion therapy. And again, I think this was one of the things that where I've seen a coming together of my professional and private lives, because there are much higher rates of mental illness and suicidality amongst the LGBTI community than the heterosexual community. So for example, up to 50% of transgender people have actually attempted suicide at least once in their lives. I mean, that is a profoundly shocking figure. And this is not because of who these people are or who they love. It's because of the additional layer of prejudice, exclusion, discrimination that adds that additional layer of risk for depression, anxiety, suicidality on top of the biological, social, the environmental and the and the sort of psychological factors that we all face, you know, whether we're gay, straight, gender questioning, whatever. So again, it's this sense of sort of marginalisation and ridicule, the othering of people. And one of the things that really concerns me is that as long as We continue to have these debates. That's a perfect storm for people not actually being who they are and not seeking support and not seeking support and treatment as early as possible. So I think, yes, we have made huge strides, but I think we are not there yet. But I'm eternally hopeful.
0: On The Making of Huge Strides, this podcast pays homage in its title to Virginia Woolf, an author who inspired feminists around the world. She battled mental illness throughout her life. It's been suggested that she may have been bipolar, but we'll never quite know because there was no effective diagnosis or treatment during her lifetime. She took her own life in 1941 at the age of 59. Now, so much has changed since then, Virginia Woolf's life and times, especially in our understanding of mental health, and yet suicide rates are still high around the world. They're high in Australia. How should we think about that? And is there anything as individuals we can do to reduce that toll?
1: Yeah, I think there's two really important points here, that suicide is not just a health or a mental health issue. It's a a really complex and multifaceted issue. And it really goes to the heart of who we are as human beings. Connection, purpose, a contributing life. I use this phrase quite commonly, you know, and it's come from my experience of working with people affected by poor mental health and who live with suicidal thoughts, is that the thing that people want and crave more than anything else is something meaningful to do, a job, a safe place to live, a home and a date on a Saturday night, feeling loved and having someone to love. Those are things that we all want. So this, you know, again, we tend to think sometimes of of people affected by mental illnesses as as different to us. In fact, they are us. They're no different to us. They want the same things as us. So I think when it comes to suicide, we need to bring this out of the shadows We did some research at Beyond Blue a couple of years ago now with the University of Melbourne, where we actually wanted to explore with the community what they knew about suicide, what role they wanted to play, if any, in suicide prevention and what they needed to do that. We found absolutely that the community is really seriously concerned about suicide. They want to do more, but they are terrified and they don't know how. Really stubborn myths, like 50% of people that we surveyed believed that only mental health professionals could talk about suicide or help prevent it. 40% worried that talking about suicide would make things worse for people. Now, there is no evidence to support either of those pieces of data. So what we did is we worked with a number of other sector organisations. It was a real collaboration. It was fantastic. To develop a campaign called You Can Talk, And that was a campaign that had a really low budget. We just used social media and it went viral. And that campaign was all about saying to people, you can talk about suicide. We must talk about suicide. This is how we should talk about suicide safely. And this is how to prepare for the conversation. These are the signs to look out for. What should I do if someone turns around and actually says, yes, I am thinking about suicide? So it's a really practical campaign and we need to keep doing that work. We need to keep encouraging really hard, terrifying, but really incredibly important direct conversations about suicide because my experience working in the sector is that every first step towards recovery starts with a conversation and the community has to be part of that.
0: That's a very good thought to conclude that section of our podcast on. I'm going to come now to our standard questions. I always put a fact to my guests, and your fact is the World Health Organisation, about which we hear so much today, has stated that every dollar invested in scaling up treatment for common mental health conditions like depression and anxiety leads to a return of $4, so that's a very good investment. And yet failure to act is generating a global economic loss of a trillion US a year. Does any of that surprise you? No,
1: it doesn't surprise me, not at all. We've got a Productivity Commission inquiry that's just been finalised here in Australia and that commission's interim report estimated that there's an $180 billion lost in productivity to mental illness each year in, in this country in Australia. And that's such a wasted contribution. It's such a waste of life. It's such a waste of talent. And, you know, we need much more investment in genuine prevention. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career? This relates to not necessarily a single incident, but it relates to an ongoing theme around my leadership style. And especially in dealing with tricky situations that I felt could be resolved much more effectively by listening, by empathy and by compromise. And that cross swords with more characteristically male styles of leadership, you know, crash through, take no prisoners, stare them down. And for that, I have been called weak.
0: And that was extremely gendered. Absolutely. And I'm sure many women listening would know exactly what you're talking about in their own workplaces too. If you could change one thing to make women's lives better overnight, if you had all the power, what would you change? Just going back to that significant
1: unpaid work that women do as caregivers and carers, the immeasurable economic and social contribution to society, to the economy, to health care, to aged care. And women give up careers. They change their ambition. They, it stymies their aspiration, their advancement, their learning capacity. So I would really focus on policies and incentives that do better
0: at recognising that. Virginia Woolf says, some people go to priests, others to poetry, I to my friends. Georgie says? Virginia and I are kindred spirits on this. Georgie <laughs> goes to her friends but also to Lola, to her family and to jigsaws. A very good list, though I'm not making any progress on the jigsaw. Thank you very much, Georgie. That's been a delightful conversation. Thanks, Julie.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.